This podcast is about the pollination of plants. Unlike animals, plants are not able to move around to form a mate, to find a mate, I should say. They are stuck where they're rooted, and therefore they have to find some other way to reproduce. The purpose of a plant and a flower is to produce seed so that it can perpetuate the species. What's very interesting about plants is that it was only during the 1700s came to be properly understood that plants, like animals, are sexual organisms and that the pollen is the equivalent of animal sperm. Indeed, one botanist, before this was realized, hypothesized that pollen was the way a plant excreted unnecessary material. In other words, it's a kind of a kind of defecation that pollen was. So it, it's quite interesting that how late it was until this was realized. The reason why it was difficult for understanding to be attained is because the idea of hermaphroditism wasn't fully understood. In other words, that you could have organisms which were both male and female at the same time. What happened was that firstly, zoologists discovered that snails and slugs were hermaphrodite. And then that opened the door for botanists to begin to think about what they were seeing in plants and to realize that the great majority of flowers are in fact hermaphrodite. They have both male organs, which are the stamens, and female organs, which is the style and ovary, in one flower. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is that while most flowers are that way, there are some plants where there are separate male and female plants. One, for instance, being mistletoe. Holly is another one. And there are other plants which, while they while the plants are hermaphrodite, they have separate male and female flowers. Now, these plants that have these separate flowers are a minority. You, you will, if anybody has grown vegetable marrows or, or cucumbers, you will see that the plants, that the flowers are different, that the male flowers are quite simple, but that the female flowers have a, has a little baby pumpkin or cucumber or, or vegetable marrow at the back of the flower. Now, the difficulty clearly for a plant, how do they get the pollen from the male part, the stamens, to the female part, the style? And there are three principal ways that they do this. One is by way of the wind, which would have been the earliest way of pollination probably. The second is by way of insects and other invertebrate animals. And the third way is by water. Now, what's interesting, as I said, other invertebrate animals, but in some cases, plants can be pollinated by birds or by bats or even by monkeys. So what does the plant do to get the animal interested in doing a job for them of moving the pollen from the stamens to the style of another plant? How can the plant actually persuade an animal to do this service for it. Now, there are two things the plant does. One is it produces nectar, which is a sugary drink for the insect. And the other one is to produce excess pollen, because pollen is a protein-rich food. And the animals, the insects or other creatures, can consume that as a form of, of nutrition. So 
the plant actually offers gifts and says, more or less, is putting a proposition to the insect. If you carry my pollen from flower to flower, I give you some honey and I give you a little bit of pollen also to, to, to nourish you. A flower really is an advertisement. It's an advertisement telling the insects, telling the hummingbird, whatever creature it is, here you will find honey, nectar, here you'll find nectar, and here you will find pollen. It's worth coming here. And the, the way the plant is actually designed is to make sure that when the insect or bird or whatever it is visits the flower, it ends up with a nice powdering of pollen on its body. So the, the insect then heads off and looks for another flower. And, and quite an interesting thing is that the insects, the insects when they're looking, when they're visiting flowers, they'll visit that they work the same type of flower. So it'll fly off hopefully to another plant and it will then visit that. Now, when it visits that, some of the pollen that has been dusted onto the body of the insect or bird on the previous visit will be deposited on the style, the female part of the the, the next flower it visits. Then the pollen grain grows a tube down to fertilize the ovum, which ultimately becomes the seed. So the insect has done the job and has enabled the flowers effectively to mate. Now, what uh, we, we what one needs to realize is that there's clearly a danger. There's clearly a problem with with, with this that a plant, an insect, might visit another flower on the same plant, and that there's inbreeding. Now, plants have various ways of dealing with that. Very often, you will find that the Stamens don't release their pollen until after the style has, has been pollinated from another flower. And then there are some plants that have interior mechanisms that don't allow cross-pollination to happen. That if a pollen grain from a flower from the same plant lands on the style, it won't develop. It'll only develop if it's from another flower. So there are various ways that plants protect themselves. Now, what's what's interesting about Wind pollination is that there is a vast amount of pollen ha has to be produced because whereas the insect does a targeted job and it goes from, say, for instance, a daffodil to another daffodil or from a foxglove to another foxglove, the wind pollinated plants, which you will see, for instance, the hazel tree with the little catkins that blow in the wind, has to produce very, very large amounts of pollen to be sure that pollen will get to fertilize the flower and that the flower that, that, that the flower will be pollination. Now grass is another wind pollinated plant and because of the abundance of pollen that's produced by these they actually end up causing people problems. They can cause hay fever because people can be allergic to this because when you inhale air during the summer you're also inhaling a dose of pollen which the air is full of because all these plants are giving off their 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 pollen into the air. So the the the, the, the there's a it's expensive for the plant because it has to produce a lot of pollen. It's also a problem for us, but it is a way in which they do it. So it it it's also means that you know if somebody brings in flowers into a hospital ward, 
and a lot of hospitals don't allow this now, but if they bring them in, there's very little danger of the pollen causing a problem because it's insect pollinated and therefore doesn't generally disperse into the air. Now I'm going to ask Phil to talk a little bit about the about the insects that visit the flowers and in fact the problems that there can be if these insects if these insects are killed off or they decline in population. We're all very well aware at the minute that there's a there's huge talk about our environment. We you know one of the huge problems in the environment is that many species are disappearing. And here in Ireland we've got a a pollinator plan, it was a 2015 to 2020, looking at what we can do because approximately 80% of all flowering plant species are specialized for pollination by insects. Some animals, but mostly insects. And this affects about 35% of world's crop production. Therefore, if we're not looking after our insects, it not only affects them, it affects the plants that, that could be destroyed, the animals that would eat those plants, and it affects us because it reduces the amount of food, feed, what, 7 billion or however many people we have. As an example, we know that in Ireland, our bee population is seriously in decline. And so one of the, one of the reasons is that in our own gardens, first of all, we plant like begonias and geraniums and daffodils, Plants that have no use for the bees whatsoever because they are not plants that the bees can actually get anywhere near pollen. And so we have to take a look at what we are growing, change the type of plants that we grow in our gardens. In the early, in the early spring, the, the crocuses, the grey parasites, but in terms of the wild plants, things like the dandelion, we shouldn't even be cutting grass until April. We shouldn't have the first cut until the dandelions have already bloomed because those are some of the all important plants for the bees to pollinate. And the, bee, the bees are coming out now, February, March. And they're hungry. And they're hungry. I saw a massive big bumblebee today. And if there's no food for them, they are dying. They do not have, they are dying. They do not have their food. So, you know, they talk about the kind of action we should be doing, allowing every part of our garden should have some wild flowers. We should, this whole idea of grass, we've got to redo the whole idea of have everything in lawns. Lawns are not healthy for insects, and they're cut constantly. Not good. Grass itself doesn't nourish insects because it's a wind-pollinated plant. That's right. And in any case, if it's mown religiously by somebody, then it won't even produce grass flowers. But the thing is that a lawn that has daisies and dandelions and other little wild flowers in it provides a source of food yeah. for bees and so on. So w one of the things I think sometimes in regard to plants is that in order to flower, in order to develop, plants need to be left alone. So having a, a kind a corner of the garden where the grass is allowed to grow longer and where plants and flowers are allowed to develop, buttercups, dandelion, things that plants that actually will come up in your garden whether you like it or not and that are very, very good in terms of nourishing the in terms of nourishing the the insects. Well, Peter, in, in in response to that too, I notice now that if you go down to the shops to buy seed, pretty well all seed now will have the bee symbol if it's a bee pollinator. If it's, it's a, if it's a bee friendly I mean if it's a bee friendly plant. And yeah. these are the kind of seeds to buy that are bee friendly. I'm gonna give you an example of 
Do you know, people probably don't know the cacao plant from, from which all the chocolate comes is the a plant. Cocoa. The cocoa plant. Yeah. It's completely pollinated by insect. And the main insect that pollinates the cocoa plant is a midge, what we would call the noceum. And this little midge, the, the, the flower itself only grows on the trunk of a tree and it only opens first thing in the morning. The, and the little male part is underneath a hood, so it couldn't get to the flower anyway. But the little noceum, the little midge, comes and collects the pollen and, and fertilizes the chocolate. And I was reading just the other day that this year, 2020, we need to produce 4.5 million tons of chocolate to feed the world's interest in chocolate. But that is beginning to be a problem as well because like so many things in nature, whole areas are planted with one specific plant. They say that we should have a variety of plants wherever we plant. So the chocolate tree, the cocoa tree, you've got one whole area planted, but it's not producing as much chocolate as they would like because if you don't know the life cycle of the midge and the midge larva needs water, and because they are planting huge tracts of land just in the ch- in the cocoa tree, they're clearing everything else out. So there's no shade. So and no water. There's no water. So they can't breed. So they can't breed. So what we're trying to suggest is that we need to understand life cycles of everything in nature. The insects, the plants. You know, to have to have insects in our garden, we need little damp patches. We need shade. We need... We need to change everything that we're doing. We need to stop using pesticides on our gardens. We need to check that we need to be sure that our soil is fertile. Um, we need to leave what we consider weeds, leave them on the verges of the road, plant, plant um, bee-loving flowers all around roundabouts, find little planters all around the city and fill them with bee-loving plants, and kind of take a look at what you have in your garden and... Do a rethink. And you know, it's not that difficult. The gardening centres now help us out considerably. And if you do go, hanging baskets often have things in them that, I, as I read recently, a lot of window boxes might as well be filled with plastic flowers for the good they're doing the bees. There is nothing in them that can feed a bee. And the bee needs the, bee needs the pollen. And the nectar. And the nectar they, is, is their food source. And also, you know, without the bees... We, we'd lose most of our fruit trees. Most of our fruit trees will be... Sterile. Yeah, they, they, they are pollinated by bees. We would lose so many plants. And we kind of don't realize how important our world, our environment, mm. the natural world is. And some of, the, some of the plants are actually quite specialized. Absolutely, that There are particular Peter. species. For instance, if you look at the, 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 the honeysuckle or wild woodbine, if you look at that flower... It's a very, very long throat, and you, you will be able to yeah. say about what what's the story? What, why does this flower have this very long throat? Well, a lot of them, they you know, you get something like a um, the the bird. It means the a bee can't get in, for instance. That's right. So you yeah. have specific ones where, let's say, a hummingbird will go for a specific nectar in a specific plant because it's got such a long trumpet. Is it called a trumpet? Yeah. And only sometimes only one specific insect can get into that plant to fertilize it. And our our wild woodbine, it's pollinated by night flying moths. And if you notice that that it gives out a very strong smell at night, much stronger than during the day, so that it it gives off this this smell because it's dark. 
simply a flower alone isn't enough. It needs to give off this very strong perfume to attract the and the moths the are only moths. flying basically they'd be the night flying moths so and the reason they the reason it has a long t- a long tube is because it it's keeping the nectar for the moth the moth has a very long tubular tongue that it can stick down into the flower and suck out the nectar other insects that that don't pollinate it aren't able to get in at the nectar. So it's selective mm-hmm. in, in, in what pollinates it. And this, there are some plants actually, that in, in, as, as you were talking about the, the, the cocoa plant, there are some plants that are so specialized that there may be only one species of insect that pollinates See. this particular plant. If that species of insect were to go extinct, the plant also would well, fall. Like the almond. You know, the almond basically is, is they're entirely dependent on Honeybees, I think it is, to pollinate them. Um, and so many of our fruit trees. We'd lose so much fruit if we had mm. no bees. Mm. So the, 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 the things, that, the main things in our environment that are in fact having a negative impact on insect population is firstly the indiscriminate use, to, use of pesticides, but also the way in which we manage our countryside. For instance, so often... Road verges are ruthlessly cut back. And these places where wildflowers could grow, where in fact intensive agriculture isn't happening, there's an opportunity there for wildflowers to be allowed to grow and flower. But I mean, I've seen around the country, even this spring, brutally cut back hedges, where there's no chance of 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 the hedges recovering well enough to flower this year. And And the hedges are also not just for the plants, but... The hedges and the hedgerows and the roadside verges, they're places where these insects and small animals live. And can when breathe. we destroy those, we're destroying the habitat of these animals as well as the plants. Mm-hmm. And again, in doing that, we're just destroying the nature. Mm-hmm. We're destroying. I mean, I think we mentioned it maybe last time that when I was a child, I, I've never been a grass lover, a lawn lover. But to the left of my house was a, just, a, just a wild patch of grass that when I was a child, it seemed to be as tall as I was. To the right was the garden, which we, which we grew all our own vegetables. And in front were the woods, where we went out continually and gathered fruit and berries. And then every Sunday, we went for a ride. And the first thing I did when we got back is I rushed to the grill of the car and to see how many insects I could identify, because the grill was just plastered with insects. You don't see that ever anymore. No. In fact, they did the some studies where they put what they call the splatometer in the front cars over it, something like a 15-year period in Britain. And the number of insects went down and down and down over that period. So so it's clear that insects are in a very serious state of decline because of the way we're actually managing our countryside. One of the things, and, uh, and I've probably mentioned it before, is the way in which silage turns fields into total sterile areas. And therefore, one of the things they're doing in Britain, and I would hope they'd probably start doing here, is having areas at the edge of the fields where they allow wild plants to grow. And one of the interesting things that's been discovered in Britain is that when they allow this to happen, that in effect, the these insects that grow that live in among these these verges will end up attacking pests and diseases of the of of the crop plant so the insects are beneficial to agriculture and in fact the regarding agriculture as 
almost a factory process doesn't actually take account of the complexities of nature and how everything is interrelated and how, in effect, the the insect population tends to be seen as the enemy and spray and so on are used to eliminate it. But very often, among that insect population, you're eliminating the very friends that keep pests under control, that keep other pests under control. And, and this isn't... And this isn't just something that, um, you know, that you might slightly be interested in. This knowledge that we need to have about our environment is absolutely crucial. Our environment is just in a dire, desperate state. We're, we're really it's, it's talking dying, it's about dying quickly. our survival. We're it, talking our, about our survival absolutely, and our well-being. Peter. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, not just, it's not just a political question. It's a moral question also. Because if we kind of allow our planet and our environment to be kind of exploited to the extent that it ceases to be able to meet our needs, then we're, we're in very serious trouble. Well, we are, because whether we realise it or not, Without the insects we have in our world, we cannot survive. We cannot survive without everything out there in nature. We are all part of this one world. And mm. everything growing out there has a purpose, whether it's an insect, an animal, a flower. And we, it behooves us to really come to love our yeah. earth because it, otherwise we are killing it. It's like, in a way, if you had a big orchestra and you just started pulling people at random out of the orchestra. Uh, what would happen to the music? There's a harmony in nature. And if you just got an orchestra and just suddenly took out the lead violinist and the, the cellist and so on, you just at random started to take people out, the music would soon descend into chaos. So it's very important that we, we, we think of nature as, as an ecosystem, as a system of interdependency, that we are part of of this the, the, this network of, of 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 living things, and that if we start to destroy it, we're, we're in effect sawing off the branch we're sitting on. Well, and I tend to think that in education today, natural history should be one of the core subjects that should be taught every single child coming into the school system. I think it's vital for the survival of our planet. I know very often children don't learn anything about natural history. Mine didn't. It wasn't part of their curriculum at all, and yet. It's what's being talked about all the time now. And you, Phil, go into classes and I you do. show them. You show them butterflies hatching out. You show them tadpoles becoming frogs. You've even, on some occasions, hatched out eggs in the classroom. And we, the children are fascinated. They, they have a it. hunger for that. And, and it's such an important part of how we see ourselves, is, is how we relate to nature. And, and what I'm saying is that, 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 that you, have, you have been, you've worked around the national schools around this part of the city. And, and you told me a story about, about a child who met you much later and said, oh, you're the butterfly lady. Yes, yeah, so you're the frog lady. Or, and last year... And last year we did the shells of Ireland, which is what we will do in another podcast because we have almost every shell of Ireland here in this in Dublin Bay. biosphere. In Dublin Bay. And it's another area that, you know, the children should know all about. They're not just talk call it a shell. They should know all about them. They're on our doorstep. Just to conclude, I was going to talk a little bit about a, f- a funny idea that occurred to me. I was looking up 
pollinators. And I found out that, for instance, you have hummingbirds and other bird species that pollinate plants, bats, even slugs. The aspidistra plant, which is quite a common plant that people liked to have in the house, particularly in the Victorian era, was is said to be pollinated by slugs. But the, 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 the interesting one was this creature from Madagascar called the roughed lemur. It's a type of a, 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 a monkey type animal. And it pollinates a thing called the traveler's tree, which is a plant in the bird of paradise plant family. Now, what it has to do is it has to tear open the, the scales around the flower and stick its tongue in. It's quite energetic thing to do to, to get the nectar. And in doing so, it pollinates the, 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 the plant and the plant sets seed and so on. So this animal is vital to the survival of this thing. So, so, so it, it's quite likely also that the lemur itself would be, is dependent on the tree for this feeding at some stage of its, 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 its life. But the, the funny thing occurred to me, and I was thinking about roses, and what do people do generally when they encounter a rose? So I was thinking the evolution of the rose pollination by human nose. 